Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Alessandro Del Ponte is a research fellow at the National University of Singapore working in the behavioral change program at the Global Asia Institute. We were introduced to Alessandro a few months ago as a newly minted PhD in behavioral political economy from Stony Brook University in New York. We discovered he was doing some very interesting work using simple video games to understand how people feel about debt spending and tax rates. We decided to reconnect with Alessandro because some of his research is lending insight to how people view trade-offs, epitomized by President Trump's recent comment, the cure shouldn't be worse than the problem. Alessandro, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, Alessandro, you are in Singapore right now. Uh, just help us understand for, for those of us in the rest of the world, how are things going in Singapore and, and how are you doing? Well, uh, things in Singapore are doing pretty well, are going pretty well. Um, we are not uh, under lockdown just yet. So we are uh, able to, to go grocery shopping, to, to go to parks, etc. So it's still quite nice. Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, just missing my wife in New York a little bit. But uh, yes. I guess that's normal. Oh. Uh, so a big shout out to her, of course, uh, who is actually on the front line right now in the hospital. Yes. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm so happy to to now talk about uh, interesting things, right, that are very relevant to the, to the present times. So, Alessandro, tell us a little bit about some of your research on that might relate to this idea of President Trump's comment, the cure shouldn't be worse than the problem. You've worked You've been working on trade-offs and moral dilemmas. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about some of that, that research, if you would. Sure. So in my dissertation research, I have uh, um, worked on moral dilemmas of international debt. Uh, so basically, in this case, the trade-off would be uh, between uh, uh, repaying government debt toward other countries and uh, saving people's jobs or lives. So how I studied this, so I studied this with uh, vignette experiments, so scenarios, and I used fictional scenarios because the real world is pretty messy. And of course, if you poll uh, a thousand Greeks, or if you poll a thousand Germans about what the Greek government should do, well, we already know the answer. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. 
Right. So what uh, I needed to do was to look at the third party that was as unaffected by this as possible. So I turned to Americans uh, using a convenient sample and a national representative sample. And uh, participants read a scenario about uh, two beautiful countries, Avalon and Fredonia. And uh, one country has uh, uh, suffered hard times. Fredonia loaned 100 billion to Avalon. Avalon promised to repay this loan over the course of a number of years. But then a few years later, Avalon is experiencing some hardship and cannot afford the payments. So the only way to pay is just by drastically cutting the programs. But with these cuts to government programs, 6,000 citizens, for instance, would lose their jobs. So now what we do uh, is we also say, well, if Avalon, the debtor country, stops repaying, then the creditor, Fredonia, will also have to make cuts to the government programs and 5,000 citizens would lose their jobs. So here we ask people, what should the government of Avalon, the debtor country, do? Should they repay the loan or cut government programs? And we also, in another condition, put lives on the line. We say, well, 5,000 people will, will lose their lives. And so we ask them again, what should the government do? And after we ask them, would it be wrong to cut government programs or would it be wrong uh, to to default on the debt. So what we find uh, is uh, something uh, interesting is a, is a dual pattern. So on the one hand, when you ask people about their policy stance, what should the government do? We see, first of all, that most people oppose default. So the government should repay no matter what. However, okay. the numbers of people who oppose default go down as the consequences grow worse. Okay, makes sense. However, what is the other part of this pattern is that when you ask them, but would it be wrong default or to, to repay, you see that people, uh, no matter how, how tough the, the damage, how tough the consequences, just have the same type of moral judgment, just judge it just as harshly. So they would say, for instance, that defaulting would be wrong. The majority said defaulting would be wrong, but also that a substantial amount of people said that cuts would be also wrong. And these numbers don't go significantly down as uh, uh, even lives on the line, as, as if the, the, the number of jobs increases. Then you have this dual pattern, right, where people, yes, are sensitive to consequences, to damage piling up, but their moral judgment is uh, pretty inflexible in terms, of, in terms of what is right or wrong. So here we can distinguish between deontological and consequentialist stances where deontological stances are stances like there's just you know, a Kantian uh, moral imperative, a law that, is, uh, uh, that just cannot be infringed no matter what and here. And then the consequentialist stance that would say, well, let's see, let's see how many jobs are lost or how many lives are lost. Right? So interestingly, as Tim pointed out at the very beginning of this, your research kind of mirrors what is actually going on in many countries right now, where they are looking at additional stimulus plans that are going to incur or incur greater debt and probably economic aspects that go on, uh, but it will help in saving people's jobs, various different pieces. And then there's also the element of, you know, lives lost and various different pieces with the amount of uh, money that is put into place in, in some of the, 
the different types of solutions that are being proposed and the, the materials and resources that are being provided. So with that, what can you extrapolate from your research into what's going on today? Are you seeing things that you go, yes, this aligns with what we anticipated or are things being different because of the scale of this aspect? So I would like to point out two uh, distinct patterns. One is that, first of all, it's a difficult problem. So if you look, for instance, at the results in the lives condition where we put lives on the line, you see that quite a substantial number of people declared that both default and cuts would be wrong. Actually, the number is close to 50%. And then you have people who say that the government should do X, but then also say that X would be wrong. So 44% of participants chose uh, cuts. So the government should cut government programs. But then they also said cuts would be wrong. And 34% of participants said that the government should default, but then the default should be wrong. So what is the conclusion? If you are in government right now, if you're a policymaker, there is no way you can get out of this completely clean <laughs> Okay, from a moral perspective. Somebody will judge you, will say you are wrong, even if you did the right thing. Uh, <laughs> wow. Provided that we know what the right thing is and hard to, to tell. And yeah. uh, then the second pattern is that we see in these experiments that a good number of people is just completely insensitive to the amount of damage that is happening. They will just not do, not recommend uh, the action that is prohibited. And in our case, the prohibited action was defaulting on international debt. And so this stance, of course, uh, can become a threat to, to public welfare, especially when the situation becomes dire like right now. And was there anything that you could tell us about the, the, the personalities or the types of people who were insensitive, who had these insensitivities, who, who lacked uh, compassion for a, a better word? Uh, yes. So I would not say necessarily lack compassion, but I can just uh, say that probably they just valued the respecting uh, property, right? And, and respecting pacts more. And these people were conservatives. So we find that distinct pattern where liberals tended to be more in favor of default and also more lenient in their judgment toward uh, a defaulting debtor, uh, whereas conservatives were um, in favor of uh, uh, repaying the debt uh, no matter what. I see that, you know, there are two sides of the, of the same coin because, of course, in some situations, it's really great to, to, to know that your debtor will repay you, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I'm Italian and I can tell you the Italian government now is facing, of course, a lot of distrust, uh, a lot of skepticism by its European partners just because the Italian government has historically not been very good at repaying back debts and a lot of help. Uh, the, gar the government has asked for a lot of help. On the other hand, uh, it is really nice to uh, receive solidarity in times where solidarity is darely needed and especially when our fates are all interconnected. So, yeah, I'm not taking any stance on this. I'm just reporting what I found. And it's important to acknowledge that these uh, differences, these ideological and partisan differences, at least in the United States, but probably also in Europe, may, uh, may exist. Yeah, this is this is just fascinating. Uh, and, and again, I come back to this whole idea of the president saying the cure shouldn't be worse than the problem. It's it feels like as a more conservative person ideologically, it's going to be easier for him to uh, to kind of not so much care about the consequences. Is that is that a fair uh, approach? 
Well, uh, I think it will depend greatly on how the situation develops, uh, because one thing that we know about uh, moral judgment is that uh, it is uh, uh, extremely context-specific. So as the situation mm. develops, actors, including policymakers, w- may change a posture even quite dramatically. And one example could be Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom. We all remember the, the famous uh, uh, words, you know, we'll have to just get used to the fact that uh, many of our loved ones will, uh, will die. And then a week to 10 days later, Boris Johnson uh, got the virus. Unfortunately, yeah. but also the UK took a U-turn in its approach. Of course, now remember Dr. Fauci said um, between 100,000 and 240,000 deaths in the US would be a great result. Well, uh, we, 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 we shall see. It depends in terms of moral dilemmas, right? We can say as a policymaker, yes, of course, it would be, it would be fantastic. But then what if uh, among those people we had, you know, loved ones? Human psychology is uh, is really well equipped to deal with specific situations, and so it will be interesting to see how the unfolding of the events will change things. Um, One of the things that I think is is constantly changing is the at least in the United States, and I think probably the rest of the world as well is the estimations of fatalities have continually gone up, and so you know the. The statement that President Trump said was said uh, a week ago, or maybe I, I'm not sure exactly when. Uh, and now that estimate, when when the estimate of deaths was much lower, or at least we weren't talking about deaths in the hundreds of thousands in the United States. Now that the deaths are up in, in the estimates of those are up much higher, does that change again to your experiments that you've done when the number of deaths increased, then more people tended to shift over into some of those other judgment areas? Is that, are you seeing the same thing? Again, I can see, you know, as you said, Britain taking a U-turn, the United States has actually probably shifted pretty significantly in some of the, the actions that are being uh, recommended by the federal government and some of the implementation implementation acts that are going on. So what are you seeing from just the estimations of deaths as they're coming up and and increasing, making a difference? So from my experiments, uh, I can infer that uh, some people will still uh, um, maintain a hardliner stance, especially people who who may value uh, the economy, protecting the Mm. economy uh, quite a lot. And we can also think uh, about who these people might be. These people might be, of course, people who have uh, a lot of money on the line because money in the end is people's lives on the line as well. You know, uh, we don't, yeah. we cannot forget the fact that there's many people in the US, but also all over the world who literally rely for their life on the income from the company, from the restaurant, from whatever business they may have. So uh, the other aspect of this is that it's very easy for, for us and for our moral mind to see the direct deaths uh, from uh, COVID-19, but uh, we have a more difficult time seeing the deaths that are side consequences. Ah. So this is another big consideration. And of course, it's easy to craft a scenario, a simplified scenario that just boils down uh, 
this crisis to a trade-off between lives and money, but in the end, uh, it might be a more subtle than this. And it might be that really there are lives on the line, uh, both uh, in uh, hospitals, but also in uh, the real economy. And it is really difficult to, to judge what should be done. It's complex, as you said before. Yeah. There's multiple layers going on. And it's interesting you talk about the the deaths that may come as a result of economic hardship and those being less visible than the COVID-19 deaths. And we had talked about invisibility of, of the disease itself with uh, some of our other guests on here and part of the problem of even trying to prevent the spread of it or washing your hands or any other aspects of this is because it we don't see it. And those things that we don't see don't have as much of a emotional presence with us. And so I can see where that the potential increase in fatalities because of economic hardships, and we know that that happens, is going to have less of a of an emotional response for many people because it's in more invisible than the very vivid images that we get of of hospitals and and morgues and and all of the aspects that come with the COVID nineteen thing. Right, and uh, another aspect uh, that is especially relevant to the United States and to the current primaries, right? Because let's remember this is an election year, after all. Mm. Uh, yes. Um, yes. There is uh, a division in the electorate, in public opinion in general, about uh, a more uh, social market economy approach, can we call it this way, versus a more pure market approach. Oh, right, um, right. This COVID-19 situation is just a perfect opportunity for the two teams to, uh, to fight against one another. Uh, <laughs> as sad as it may seem and as sad as this is, so another aspect of moral judgment is that it is distinctly uh, aimed uh, at uh, uh, taking sides. So moral judgment is part of a broader side-taking psychology. So why would you be hardwired to, uh, to, to judge uh, whether an action is right or wrong? Well, with, because you can decide uh, on which side of a dispute to be. So in the mm. case of the market and of government interventions, one team is very much uh, in favor of government intervention. One team is very much against it. What we can say about this is that uh, this is a pretty peculiar situation in which government inter intervention is not aimed at uh, bailing out uh, companies that are inefficient and they're just, uh, you know, for instance, a restaurant that is just making bad food and, okay, the market is just punishing. No, it's a situation where even the best restaurant or the best, right. uh, you know, uh, will will inevitably uh, struggle. Even uh, you know, maybe of course, uh, creativity will kick in, and uh, uh, you know, takeout will will be an option. But imagine, you know, the fine dining restaurant, <laughs> whatever other establishment that uh, that absolutely must go through physical presence. You know, those people, even if they accidentally at a job, will be in. The, dire straits. Imagine, you know, a wedding photographer or, you know, uh, event organizer. Any entertainment that requires that do concerts, uh, movies, various different pieces that you, you have to gather that you no longer can do that. It's not about how good or bad you are as an, as a company, as, as, uh, providing a service or product. It's the situation itself is dictating that. That's an interesting perspective on that. 
Yeah, so then, as I said before, just like in the case of Italy and, uh, you know, not being well known as a good uh, uh, debtor, as a good repayer, <laughs> it is good also probably in the U.S. to consider this. So if you have a history of, uh, uh, you know, uh, slacking on, 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 on your debts or relying too much on being bailed out, then it's possible that the public will be outraged at the possibility that, uh, you know, the government will support you doing during COVID. If, however, you're an industry in general, without naming names, but if you're an industry that is well known for not relying on government support all the time, then maybe the public might be more reliant, more uh, you know, willing to have them rely on government support. Yeah, so the uh, the effect of of this cumulative communication, the cumulative effect uh, that comes from of reputation and transactions, those kinds of things play into which side we want to take, right? Into this this moral judgment, right? That if we if we have viewed an industry or viewed a company as benefiting too much from bailouts in the past, we might be uh, less likely to want to support them. And uh, a, a different kind of a company that has done well at repaying their debts, uh, we might look more favorably, and we would actually take sides around them. Is that a fair statement? Yes, definitely. I think this is uh, certainly a big issue. I can speak to one case uh, in uh, my home country, in Italy. Well, uh, the, the airline Alitalia uh, has been uh, repeatedly bailed out for the past uh, decades. And the Italian government was looking for uh, somebody, uh, some investor to acquire it, to, to buy it. But of course, then COVID-19 happened. And now guess what happened? The company uh, was bought by the government again. Now, it is, of course, critical at this juncture to have an airline that can, say, uh, bring Italians back home when, all, when most airlines or all airlines have stopped flying to Italy. But, of course, the Italian public or part of the Italian public has reacted with outrage at this, with moral outrage, because they say it's just immoral that they, an airline that has been basically artificially kept alive for decades by taxpayer money is now being uh, built up. So you see that you risk suffering uh, from exposure to public outcry in a situation where you don't deserve it uh, in the very moment, right? But you, of course, owe it to your past history of uh, not being an excellent uh, citizen, social global citizen or you know, social citizen, corporate yeah. citizen, let's call it. Also, uh, Alessandro, one of the things that uh, we had queued up is the idea of sometimes um, bad actions can create good consequences, right? That that there are times when we are willing to make these changes or these exchanges uh, about the end justifying the means. And sometimes we're willing to, to say, yes, the end does justify the means through which we get there. And other times we're willing to say, no, the means are more important. Do you see that playing out in our current situation? Absolutely. Uh, you can uh, think about the following problem, the lack of ventilators. So here we know, right, uh, private property is sacred. But uh, it has been proposed that the government just nationalizes some companies or the, the production of some companies for a short period of time and just says, you guys, instead of producing cars, you're just going to produce ventilators. This would be an instance where infringing on, on something that is a sacred principle in, uh, 
in a you know democratic society with with rule of law and respect of property rights is probably for the greater good at least uh, some people could argue so uh and and people are arguing that do you see an economic i mean you've studied supply and demand curves for a long right. time uh how how do you see these playing out typically is there is there a model that you can look at to say the likelihood of of it working or not working or what what the consequences might be if we were to forecast, if we were to stand a year or two years in the future how might do you think that these will play out so this is of course uh, the question how long will this play out because it's very clear it has to be very clear that uh, this has to be an emergency situation and so at best uh, to preserve of course the idea that property rights uh, are, are sacred and respected, uh, it should be very temporary and only insofar as it's needed to save lives uh, in the short run. So I remember Andrew mm-hmm. Cuomo's uh, statement on this, and he literally said we need ventilators not uh, a month from now, but literally maybe a week from now or two weeks from now. So that's why it's important to uh, to have companies... Uh, produce for us, say, masks for for hospital employees or ventilators for ICU beds. Then, but then, on the other hand, there is the temptation, of course, uh, uh, by probably by some bureaucrats, we know this from uh, public choice theories, that uh, uh, the reach of the government may uh, extend above and beyond uh, what is reasonable. And we, we can see this in other countries which are not democratic, uh, I can think of China, for instance. We, we we know about a lot of big intrusions, right, in, uh, in people's lives. One thing mm-hmm. that uh, history can teach us is how the Romans uh, used to deal with these things when, the, well, whenever they had a crisis, a big crisis such as a, a health crisis or a war or a famine, they would appoint uh, two people. They call them dictator, which uh, is uh, the word dictator in English. Mm-hmm. which did not mean dictatorial in the bad sense of the word that we have today. It's simply two people that for six months had uh, uh, the task to fix the problem, and they knew that after six months they would be gone. And there was no chance of just staying power. They're just gone from public life. So that could be <laughs> something that at least we can uh, uh, relate to in the present times. That's a great model. The idea of saying you're only going to be appointed to this for a very short period of time. And when it's done, you won't have any more input on it. And uh, that would cert, I would certainly think that that would change our decision-making. Gosh, those, those darn Romans, they had some really good (laughs) ideas. Alessandro, thank you so much. This has been really informative and I believe a very unique perspective on some of the trade-offs and and aspects that go into that. So we appreciate your input on this. Thank you. Thank you so much again for having me. Welcome to the special edition grooving session where Tim and I groove on some ideas and concepts that were inspired by our conversation with Alessandro. So Tim, what struck you in this conversation? Well, there is a Big philosophical discussion in this, big moral discussion about the deontological stance of Kant 
and the consequentialist stance, and we're not. I don't want to go there. Let me I was going to say you you lost me at, at <laughs> dialogic. No, I, I, yeah. I don't want to go there. I want to focus on the research and findings about how he poses these fictional vignettes to Americans, and and the fabulous thing for me is that. that there's these two contradictory patterns that evolve, right? That that 44% of the people said that the government should honor the debt and should make the cuts, but that making the cuts is morally wrong. So that's, they should pay their debt, but in doing so, they have to make the cuts to the social health network and the things that are going to potentially endanger the lives of people people there. Okay. And 44% thought that was morally wrong. But they said that that's what the government should do. Because they need to honor those debts. Honor honor the debts. And then the other group is 34% said the government should default on the debt, but that defaulting on the debt is, guess what? Morally wrong. Right. (laughs) So So saving the lives of our people, but defaulting on that debt is still, it's morally wrong. So there's no right answer here. <laughs> right, right. And, and I kind of love this, actually. I, I, w- I just love this idea that we are so complex as humans and that there are always two different views. There's always two different views. A- and this is just who we are. So in some ways, we've got to learn to live with that. Right. And the, the interesting part, we got into that conversation between conservatives and liberals and the idea that conservatives don't lack um compassion. Oh, right. It's just that they view different things. They value different things differently. And that's yeah. the important part here, right? And it's not that liberals were, you know, less likely to, or less about, you know, maintaining your, your obligations that you have. It's just that they value different things in yeah. different, at different levels. So understanding that it, Again, it goes back to, it's not black and white. This is not, oh, if you say this, you are morally reprehensible. No, it's understanding that there are shades of gray in how we all think. And that thinking pattern, while it may not agree with what I, I say, and there may be parts where I would say that is really wrong, I do have to give a, a little bit of free range to a certain degree of saying, all right, but they have their viewpoints and how do I understand their viewpoints Mm -hmm. to better inform how I'm reacting to it? And this is particularly challenging when our fates are interconnected and completely intertwined, right? And it it also reminds me of Jonathan Haidt's Moral Foundations, of course. Right. Right. Well, that- Go back to that. Yeah, that interconnectedness I think is really important here. Again, talking about the social welfare versus an individual perspective in this crisis. Yeah. Right? So, you're infringing on my freedom to go out and to to do my business, to interact with the people that I want to interact with. But you're doing that with this idea that it's helping the social welfare, that we are protecting others because by limiting your freedom to do things. So it comes down to how how much do you value that individual autonomy that you have versus the impact that that has on social welfare and I think that also comes down to how much you view this a constraint on your autonomy and how much you think that the 
that restraint will actually impact the social welfare. I think if it was clearly shown and everybody was in full agreement that the actions that have been taken will result in zero deaths versus, you know, 250 deaths, you're going to have a different perspective on this. Whereas some people are going, how much is this actually going to, these actions of social distancing, how much are those going to actually impact those deaths? So it gets tricky. How much does context matter in this cultural context, whether you grow up in an, and whether you're living in a world that's highly individualistic versus a world that's highly collective? Like, was it easier for people in Asia to say, okay, the government says we need to shelter in place, we need to lock down, we need to quarantine, we're not going out, we're not doing anything. It's for the collective good. Okay, I'm in. Okay. You know, it may be hard, but but I'm in. In the United States, you know, land of cowboys, no way. I don't want to do that. Don't don't force me to do something that I don't want to do. Yeah. Two very, very different contexts. Okay, Kurt, what uh, what struck you in this conversation? Going back to context, moral judgments, mm. like anything in human nature, tend to be context-specific. <laughs> yes. Right? So the disease, going back again to the idea of that individual and you're infringing on my freedoms, that is one aspect. Mm-hmm. That changes, however, if all of a sudden that infringement perspective may be very different if your loved one or somebody you know or you comes down with the disease. Well, he even gave the example of Boris Johnson, mm-hmm. right? Was, wasn't that the, uh, like, like what, you know, five weeks or something in advance he was saying, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe some of our loved ones will die. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, then, and then he comes down with it and he has a change of heart and we're, you know, this plan about rolling out for testing is now, it's, <laughs> right. everybody's going to be tested, right? <laughs> right. So, and, and, and we're laughing, but this is the human condition. In some ways, it's okay because this is just who we are, right? And by the way, this disease is invisible. Uh, it keeps coming back. That keeps coming back in yeah. to these conversations. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's going to be really hard for us to justify things that we can't see, right? It's hard to say, it, it's hard for most people to believe that something that we, we executed on as a preventative measure actually saved lives. It's going to be hard for people to see that because those people, the the lives that we saved, well, they're just living. They didn't right. die. They didn't die. We don't know if they would have died. So there's this unknown aspect of that. That's one part of this that scares me is that if we do, it, it scares me and it doesn't scare me. Let me, let me. let me take that point of view here. But if we do a really good job and we prevent the number of deaths, because deaths are visible. Deaths are those numbers that we can actually count. But if we do a good job of social distancing and all the other interventions that have been put in place, and the deaths are well below what the anchored in number is now, which again, I have a hard time with people who are making predictions about the number of deaths that could be because you're going to anchor people in on beliefs that are either going to be too high or too low. They're not going to be right on. They're, they're going to be, be very difficult to be right on. Mm-hmm. And and with that, then the judgment of that, of the interactions that we do, the interventions, excuse me, are going to be relative to what we've anchored in on. Mm-hmm. So if we say 250,000 lives, but we end up with 
80,000 lives lost, then it's going to be a a great success. If we had anchored in on 50,000 lives lost and we have 80,000 lives lost, then it's a it's an abstract, you know, absolute horror and and failure. Yeah. So this idea that you know, in in retrospect what is going to happen. And again, Going back to a conversation we had with Christina uh, Bicchieri, you know, we we are moral, you know, we we rationalize our, uh, what is it? We're motivated reasoners, right? Motivated thinkers, yeah. Thinkers, thank you. Mm-hmm. And the confirmation bias that comes in. And because of this difference that we will probably end up having very different views on how successful our interventions were based on our political beliefs and what we've anchored in on. Yeah. This this anchoring links back to prospect theory, right? Because wherever we choose as our starting place, that's going to influence how we per- how we perceive the world as it unfolds. Not to get too deep into the moral dilemma side of this again, but, <laughs> but I do want to I just want to bring up this does the end justify the means? Yeah. When when Alessandro brought up this question about ventilators, if there's a lack of ventilators, and we say, "Okay, this is a problem." There's a problem that we need to fix. A private company lives in the private domain on its own, and the government can't tell it what to do. But do we think it's okay in a situation like this for the government to come in and say, no, no, I'm going to tell you, this private company, I'm going to tell you what to do. You're going to make ventilators. I'm thinking about General Motors right now. Mm-hmm. Um, is that okay? And how do, we, how do we counter that with the idea that we want to keep government out of private enterprise? You know, that this is this is a problem, right? Where we want to say, no, government doesn't belong in private enterprise. Government does government, not not private enterprise. And in the short term, does the end, the production of additional ventilators, justify the means of the government coming on coming in and telling General Motors to produce some damn ventilators? Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum. And it's a conundrum from the perspective that in the short run. I think most people, if you can show that by producing these ventilators, you will save X number of lives, and that's in the social welfare of everybody, then having the government come in and and mandate that, probably a good thing. Granted, there are going to be some libertarian beliefs where, no, that should not happen no matter what. Even doesn't matter if it saves a thousand lives, a million lives, uh, 10 million lives. That's that's just wrong in its very nature. But I think if most people saw that you could save hundreds of thousands of lives by doing that, then that's probably a good thing. Yeah, especially given the size of the consequences. Right. right? The conundrum yeah. comes in, I think, is then does that is there a slippery slope? Is there right. then right. what where do you draw the line? Where do you draw all right, is it ten lives? Is it a hundred lives? Is it a thousand lives? Is it ten thousand lives? Exactly. And exactly. and then you get into a economic element of what's a life worth versus <sighs> others, oh, which man. gets really into some moral dilemmas that you talk about. It's 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 tough. Yeah. Well, I don't want to end this episode without just uh, a shout out to Alessandro's wife, who we know is like uh, unlike anyone else that we've talked to during this series. The idea that one of our guests has a loved one who is on the front lines in New York City fighting this this virus uh, is uh, noteworthy and praiseworthy. Yes. And we just want to wish her the best, 
and staying safe and uh, thank her for all the all of the good work that she's doing to help keep people alive. Yeah, and and I feel really sorry for both of them that they're separated at this point too, just from the fact that in this time of trial and tribulation for them, they're not even in the same city. And I think yeah. just how how hard that has to be for both of them. So shout out uh, again to, to both of them and for the work that Alessandro's wife is doing. I think that's great. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavior Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I'm at T. Houlihan and Kurt is at What Motivates. We really do love hearing from you. And this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands.